Good evening and a very, very warm welcome here to St. Paul's this evening. My name is Mark Oakley and it is my privilege this evening to welcome each and every one of you here to what I know will be a special evening. I'll introduce our speaker in just a moment, but for those of you who've not been to one of our events here before, let me quickly explain how it works. In a moment, the Archbishop of Canterbury will speak about a good Lent. He will speak for about 30 minutes or so, and then we will have plenty of time for you to ask your own questions. Now, I imagine there are lots of things that we'd all like to ask the Archbishop about, but tonight is about Lent. <laughs> and Lent is a time of discipline and self-denial. So I'm going to ask you to start Lent really well and discipline yourself into asking questions about the topic of the evening. So if you have a question about Lent and the Archbishop's talk, please write it on the back of your programme and then hold it up to be connected. You can do this at any point during the evening. Don't worry, we're not going to think you're asking to be excused or something. We'll collect the questions up until about 7.40. And it really does help if you can keep those questions brief and legible. <laughs> We're also taking questions via Twitter this evening using the hashtag GoodLent. If you'd like to send us your question through your mobile phone, just type in your question and include hashtag GoodLent and we'll find it. Your questions then come through to me up here on the laptop. I do promise you I'm not catching up on Wolf Hall when I'm sitting up here. I sometimes feel I'm in Wolf Hall in the Church of England, but uh, uh, that's what I'm doing, is looking at your questions as they come through, and then I'll field them, collect them up for the Archbishop, and we will end promptly at 8 o'clock. And there's a bookstall up here of books that might help deepen your experience of the season, including books the Archbishop will mention and the Lent book he's commissioned from Desmond Tutu this year, In God's Hands. And now it gives me huge pleasure to introduce our speaker. Justin Welby is the 105th Archbishop of Canterbury. Ordained deacon in 1992, he left a successful career in the oil industry and a lay leadership role at Holy Trinity Brompton, going into training for ordained ministry, kicking and screaming, in his own words. That ministry has included the deeply rural and the intensely urban, from Warwickshire to the Niger Delta and Baghdad, including a very formative time working in reconciliation at Coventry Cathedral. In 2007, he was made the Dean of Liverpool, a cathedral so large it makes this place seem positively cosy. And then in 2011, he was consecrated Bishop of Durham, foiling the bookies by being announced as Archbishop of Canterbury just a year later. He has rapidly established himself as a thoughtful, authentic, awkward, often countercultural voice in our national life, from taking on the injustices of payday lending with practical action to establishing the community of St. Anselm in Lambeth Palace 
for the formation of young people in prayer and action for social justice. And it's great to have formative members of the community here this evening, and I know that they'll be very happy to tell you more at the end. It's always very difficult for a priest to say nice things about an archbishop without sounding like you're trying to get a job. <laughs> but to be personal, I like him. Because... You're in a small minority at the moment. <laughs> not here, not here. I like him because he's ready to get into a bit of gospel trouble. He is a graceful irritant to the unthinking or the unfeeling. And he's clearly unafraid to take on illusions, whether they're in the church or in the world, but somehow he doesn't leave us feeling disillusioned in the process. And the faith that I've heard him talk about is risky, humane, open, and hopeful. And like you, I've seen him seek to practice what we pray for. There's also an appealing dose of irony that has been the salvation of many an Anglican. And all that chemistry makes him the person to lead the church on the uncomfortable but transformative ride it undoubtedly has to make in the coming years. The last person I interviewed here was the artist Grayson Perry. <laughs> And I even think the Archbishop has got the better frocks as well. <laughs> we were delighted when he agreed to come and open this series about the seasons at the heart of the Christian year, to explore these heartlands of Christian faith, to see what's going on inside us, who we've become, and to be recalled to a Christian life that can so easily be simmered down by routine or stopped from growth from a sense that the gospel is more about full stops than commas. And one of his priorities for the church that he's made very clear is a fresh understanding of prayer, something we all probably feel we need help with, especially us clergy, I must add. And we look forward to hearing now how in Lent we can prayerfully renew our commitment to the implications of the resurrection in our lives, faithful and loyal to the future. So our warmest thanks to him for taking an evening out of his relentlessly busy schedule to talk to us about how we might try and be more faithful in this 40-day season, how Lent might wake us up again to the things that matter if God is allowed a look in. Would you please join me in welcoming the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. Thank you, Mark, very much. Let's start with a moment of silence and prayer. Holy God, holy and immortal, holy and strong. Send your spirit to open our hearts and minds afresh to who you are, 
to enable us to turn afresh to you, to strengthen us, to be obedient to what we see. Amen. First of all, thank you very much for the welcome. He says he's not watching Wolf Hall. I looked at the screen and it has on it a series of hello, question mark, hello, question mark, even more desperately, hello, which I think is him trying to get in touch with people. But it does end by saying, it's working. Thank you too for being here this evening. I always feel deeply privileged and quite overwhelmed when there's a crowd of people. Um, I'm sure I'd feel even more overwhelmed if they came back, but uh, they never do. <laughs> Some things stick in the memory. In 2004, when I was working at Coventry, I was in a part of Africa which was in the midst of some very serious fighting. A group that the local villagers, who were themselves no pushover and were heavily armed, called the, a group called the black-clad militias, was raiding across the area, killing, looting, burning. With a colleague, I drove into the area where the fighting was going on to get to a small town that was under siege, or had been. We managed to get to it. On the way there, after a long period in the car on very bad roads, we stopped for a few moments' break. There was a series of burnt huts to our right. And I walked a few meters towards them. Around me rose ash. It was this time of year. In fact, it was the Monday before Ash Wednesday. The ash rose in clouds, settling on me from the burnt houses and as I walked, I realized the ash of those who'd been burned. That was ash without hope, ash without change, ash rising in clouds to call all who saw it to acknowledge human evil but not to, promising, to promise anything better. Every Ash Wednesday, when I'm at a service with the ashing, it's that ash that comes back to my mind. And I see in my mind's eye again, as I did yesterday, the small humps in the ground of the people who'd been killed, the marks of blood on the walls, the, destro the destroyed huts, 
Ash Wednesday, this time of year, is a moment in which we are called afresh to look at the reality that that village represented, the reality that is the reality of human sinfulness and evil, and to reflect that that lies deeply within ourselves, all of us, without exception. Not perhaps to that extent, but in one way or another. A good Lent takes hold of that and in an extraordinary way makes space for the hope of Christ. It makes space for the hope of Christ not in, only in our own individual lives, which I will focus largely on this evening, but also in the life of the household and family, in the life of the church and of local communities, and I want to suggest in the life of society generally. And I want to speak to you about how this works through some words from an Old Testament prophet and the writings of a 6th century monk, the prophecy of Isaiah and the rule of St. Benedict. But also, because it happened this last week, like that, those burned huts all those years ago, let us remember this evening those 21 Egyptian Christians who made so much space in their lives for the hope of Christ that they witnessed to him to the point of their death. Yesterday, I was visiting Bishop Angelos, the remarkable Coptic bishop in Britain, to condole with him on those losses, on those terrible killings. And he told me some of the details. I won't tell you all of them. But there is one that is extraordinary. They were given the opportunity to convert and chose not to, knowing the consequence. And then they were killed, most terribly. And the one who got away tells that each of them, as they were killed, was calling out, Jesus is Lord. A good Lent makes space for the hope of Christ in a way that draws us into their fellowship and to walk with them. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 says, A voice cries out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The prophet Isaiah speaks to a people in exile and despair. Much how many Christians across the Middle East and Africa must be feeling right now and in other places too offering them hope and return and a purpose. The way in which that return will be experienced by the Jewish people coming back from Babylon to Israel, the way that they were going to experience that covers every aspect of their life together, from the individual to the national, and draws in the decision of their imperial masters especially Cyrus, the king. 
Over the following 27 chapters of Isaiah, or following 26, that one and the rest, the exiled and those returning will find an extended justification by God of his judgment on the people and a consequent call for holiness and for place to be made in their lives and in their way of living that means the blessing of his presence is fully experienced. A good Lent makes space for the presence of God in hope. But Lent is probably one of the most individualistic of the great Christian seasons, at least in our modern way of doing it. The questioner of what are you doing for Lent, which I was asked on a train yesterday, I didn't have an answer, but please don't tell people, is always one which is asked with an implicit singular you. If you were asked it in France, it would be a tu, not a vous. I'd wish I'd had a better answer. But, if, but we actually, we have to stop seeing Lent, if it is to be a good Lent, simply as something that is individual. The House of Bishops pastoral letter, you may all hiss, or cheer, <laughs> published on Shrove Tuesday, has at its heart that tension between the individual and the joint. It contrasts the solitary stranger and the community of communities. It calls for a moral vision of society in which every part of society is brought into forms of relationship that are healthy, energizing, and lead to human flourishing. It is neither left-wing nor right-wing. It notes the absence of a capacity for moral debate in this country. It puts the way we live on a spectrum not of left and right, but of holiness and sin. A good Lent makes place for hope by leading us afresh into encounter with the holiness of God. The central point of the pastoral letter is that human beings are made to live in relationship. And communities of human beings are made to live in relationship with other communities. In Lent, we are not to turn inwardly to ourselves, but to start with ourselves and to see a transformed life in community and relationship, not only with God, but with each other. It's not a two, it's a vu. It's not a what are you doing? It's what are you doing is the question that Christ puts to us. The key response in relations to God's hope for the exiles in Babylon comes near the very end of Isaiah, chapter 65, verse 1, where the highway of God's promised return is realized in God's own words to the people when God says to them, almost desperately, here I am, here I am. 
These are words that would echo loudly for Isaiah because they're the very words he voiced to God at the start of his ministry. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8, here I am, send me. The individuality of Isaiah's Lenten call, here I am, send me, is magnificently reversed into a universality by which God is available and longing to draw near to his people. God calls to us and to each of us continually. And our response must above all be to listen and pay attention. In listening, the doors of hope are opened afresh. God says, to the returned exiles of Israel. When I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. In the rule of St. Benedict, Benedict says in his introduction, let us hear with awestruck ears what the divine voice crying out daily doth admonish us. And also, what, dearest brethren, can be sweeter to us than this voice of the Lord inviting us? So for each of us, a good Lent begins with paying attention, with beginning to make straight the way of the Lord by listening. Mark, as we were coming in, said sympathetically, you must almost always be on transmit you're absolutely right. I almost always am on transmit. And during Lent, I, learn, I need to learn to flick the switch and be on receive. But I suspect you'd be a bit grumpy if I sat down. Well, you might be very pleased if I sat down now, actually. Still, I'm going to pretend you would be grumpy. Listening began with Ash Wednesday yesterday. We have to start by acknowledging our sin and our humanity. We cannot listen while we fill our ears with our own self-confidence and our own self-worth. What we are is what we are in Christ and nothing more. And what that is, is the summit of all God's creation, flawed and fallen in sin, but with all the possibilities which our saviour brings us. Each of us in Christ is saved from slavery to sin and the condemnation that goes with it and we are saved for the delight of walking with Christ in relationship, being drawn into his global family to the great purpose of bringing in the kingdom of God so the world may see the glory of Christ and find itself the the unmeasurable and surpassing joy of serving God and being embraced by his love. And in Lent, we open the way of hope that the world may see. We used to be a lot tougher about this. Today, Lent is a form of self-improvement, if it is observed at all. Someone said a few days ago, that nowadays Lent tends to consist of giving up sugar in coffee or doing without your biscuit. I'm not sure what it achieves, but it's surely infinitely more than that. 
at the individual level, it draws us to see what we have been saved from and what we've been saved for. With a slight sense of mischief, I have reintroduced the idea that we say the combination from the Book of Common Prayer at Lambeth on Ash Wednesday, as is prescribed in the rubric, and you will have done yesterday. <laughs> I'm impressed with your poker face. <laughs> it's a wonderful service, the combination. I'm surely, surely you've read it during dull sermons. It comes just before the, psalm, the psalms. It's absolutely marvelous. It starts with an initial cursing of all kinds of interesting things, like removing our neighbor's landmark, as well as rather more serious modern sins of perverting the judgment of the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and so on and so forth. Towards the end, it says this. I'm only telling you, not because I assume you don't know the combination by heart, but because the words have a certain resonance, even though you will all have said them yesterday. Although, it says this, although we have sinned, yet have we an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let us therefore return to him and be ordered by the governance of his Holy Spirit, seeking always his glory and serving him duly in our vocation with thanksgiving. This is a bit more serious than indicated by giving up a biscuit with one's coffee. So what do we do for a good Lent individually? We listen. We listen to the voice that echoes through creation, the voice that cries to each of us, here I am, here I am. And what does that mean in practice? Well, I'm going to get so rather absurdly practical for a few minutes. But don't worry, I'll get over it. One of the wonderful things about scripture is it is there that we listen. Whether we're listening to it in a service, in a liturgical setting, whether we're reading, whether it's a few words before we go to sleep. And we need to remember that the words of scripture were not written by people in comfortable circumstances, far from the distractions of life. But in the midst of all the terrors and horrors that we still see lived out today in the same areas of the Middle East. Those who wrote knew what it was to be a refugee and slave. They knew persecution and genocide. For that reason, as we turn to its pages and seek the Spirit of God, we will find comfort and hope. But let us be practical. For those who have incredibly busy lives with long hours, and many here who will work in offices where there is not a single moment of silence or space during the day, and I do remember that. For those who leave early for work, who are not in control of their diary, and the events with which they deal, and return late and tired. For those who are carers at home, isolated, often lonely, with many demands, for those are housebound by illness, but for all the different categories, for those who amidst it all seek to maintain some kind of life in a household, 
time with partner and children or friends, developing some hinterland beyond the demands of daily life. For all them, listening is so difficult. So how do we listen? Let me suggest one Lent discipline which you might like to add to giving up the biscuit. Read Luke's Gospel, a chunker today, and ask yourself as you read it three simple questions. What does it say? What does it mean? What am I going to do about it? Very simple, simplistic even. What does it say? The first question is simply an exercise in putting ourselves into the place of the listener or the observer. I was looking at today at uh, Caravaggio's picture of the call of Matthew, where a rich group of tax collectors sits behind a table and Jesus in bare feet comes in and points to him and he's got... He's looking astonished. He's got his hand to his chest. He can't believe. What, me? You want me? Peter's behind him, sort of going, not quite daring point himself. Where are you in that picture? Father Laurent Fabre, the founder of Chemin Neuf, says, I'm Matthew. That's who I am. I'm the one who's far away every time I look at it. Where are you in the story first? What does it say? What's going on? What does it mean? People are intimidated by scripture, by the Bible, wondering if they shouldn't see something immensely profound. And the answer is you see what God shows you on the day. Sometimes you see a lot, sometimes you see a little. If you have a short time, simply look at the plain text in front of you. Of course there's more. It's infinitely deep. Of course you can learn New Testament Greek and read profound commentaries, and that's wonderful. But in Lent, do what you can, not what you can't. And what do I do about it? Ask yourself, how do I make my life more open to Christ because of what this is saying to me? For myself, such reading is part of my own daily discipline of prayer, which includes a lot of other things as well. Time is spent, and at the end of jotting down whatever banal or occasionally less banal thoughts I have, I always put in a couple of lines of what I'm going to do about it. Sometimes it's very practical, writing to someone or speaking to someone who, may, who I may have offended. This week that would take a long time. <laughs> it may be very simple, merely saying a prayer of sorry or thank you or petition for something of which I need reminding. Of course, to make straight the way of the Lord so that he comes to us, to open our lives so that hope comes up afresh, to smooth out the road so that our lives are opening, open to listening, has infinitely more variety than this. Let me suggest one other and then move on. 
As individuals, and this is a cliche, but there we are, even short periods of complete silence during Lent. Fasting from noise and conversation and distraction will be of great value. How little we do of it. Every weekday at Lambeth Palace in the chapel, there is a period of silent prayer after evening prayer. When I can, because I don't have an immediate appointment, I join with the community there in the silent prayer. It starts with my mind churning with the events of the day and upcoming events, with reports in the press, with resentment and joys, and the occasional twinge of cramp in my foot. Fortunately, I'm not the only one, and silence is occasionally disturbed by an ooch and a shifting. But as the churning subsides, I begin to hear other things. The sound of a siren going off. We live between a police station, a fire station, and a hospital, so there's quite a lot of them. Then after a while, I incorporate that into the prayer and find just a little that God is in the midst and space is being made and I can hear. I've had to learn, I'm still very much learning, that I do not need to do anything in that time. I need only to be willing to listen. It's a time of meditation and reflection, of discovering the God who all the time is saying, here I am. But Lent is no mere individualistic, narcissistic, and inward-looking self-help festival. The basic building block of society has been communities of different sorts and shapes. What that means has varied extensively at different ages and in different places. For many people, it's still a family, that wonderful building block of society, one of many. For others, it's an extended family. For others, it's a group of friends you see most regularly or with whom you share a house. A good Lent in oneself must overflow in generosity. It's one of the signs. Here again, take out the bumps in the road. Can we live a good Lent with those who we live with? The bumps in the road that we need to smooth out to make the way smooth for the Lord to come. Relationships have been neglected and that therefore are full of clutter that needs removing. They can be very difficult. Broken relationships may be easily mendable. Little irritations. Or it may be that we need in a good length to take the first step to clearing away a major landslide. The community of St. Anselm, which we will be launching in September, will have as part of its prayer discipline the process of confession with one another, of being open with one another in prayer. I've watched them do it at Chemin Neuf. I can tell you it's not a lot of laughs. Sitting with someone with whom you live, having to confess where you've gone wrong but it doesn't half make for functional community. We need to deal with what it is we find in those closest to us. It might even be a cathedral chapter 
Not, of course, this cathedral, which has no problems in its relationships ever. I'm hoping to get re-invited, you know. How do you do it in practice? Openness, transparency, but also go back and use the same approach to scripture as I suggested a few moments ago. And one has to treat each person and relationship differently. There's a wonderful book called The Pastoral Rule of Gregory the Great, which describes this at great, great length. But if you're going to deal with relationships, if you're going to smooth the road so God finds a living community of those who love one another and shine out and overflow with the goodness of Christ, you'll have to deal with each person individually. I can tell you from my own experience that sitting in silence can as easily bring out the anger rather than replacing it with peace. You know the sulky silence as opposed to the healthy one. Look at the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. The story is dramatic enough and very humorous. It will have shocked the crowds that have watched it. Here was a bad guy, a tax collector. He's received by Jesus who knew his name. He, Jesus goes to his home and Zacchaeus turns away from all that had gone wrong. What we have here is a series of mended relationships. Zacchaeus repairs his relationship with the community of Israel. With Jesus, he makes a new relationship and he sorts himself out with God. His household is turned into a place of hospitality rather than extortion. That is a good Lent, lived in a few hours in Jericho on a hot day. The bigger the institution we are part of, the harder it is to have a moral center that is maintained and the easier it is to slip into bad habits with institutional life that drown out the voice of God. Remember, we are to listen for a good Lent. That's always been an issue with the church and it remains an issue today. Our own concerns and troubles, even the entirely legitimate ones, may obscure our capacity to see and hear Christ in those with whom we disagree. A rarely good Lent for the church, moving outwards again, is one in which we give up not listening. We may also give up insisting that everything must be done for us and in our way. We may even take up the habit of paying attention to those we find difficult and with whom we disagree. Making space for Christ in the life of the church comes when the church looks outwards and suddenly he is there in our midst. The discipline of a good Lent is to find again how we are open, welcoming the stranger, practicing hospitality, listening. We hear in the most unlikely places when we listen collectively. Benedict reminds us that whenever weighty matters are to be trans transacted in the monastery, let the abbot call together the whole community. 
all should be called for counsel because the Lord often reveals to the younger what is best. It is the eternal experience of the church that God's word comes to us in surprising ways and from unusual and very often in our eyes unimportant people. In practice, can we make a discipline of listening better, perhaps in our individual churches, gathering once or twice during Lent for a period of prayer, of silence, confession, of dealing with bad relationships and sharing a meal together. There we will find Christ in the middle. There the road will be made smooth and hope will spring. And I just want to end by imagining for a moment whether it is possible to have a good Lent in society as a whole. Can we even talk of such? It is the point for which we pray, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And like all prayer, we need to follow that prayer by saying inside ourselves, here am I, send me. It is where we find God's spirit at work in the world both where the world breaks into the life and action of the church and where the church breaks into the life and action of the world. The bishop's letter talked of the need of a new politics. Perhaps that new politics includes the capacity to listen humbly to one another that we find so difficult to serve and form new exercises of power, to create and make space for people to flourish, to grow their own businesses, to hold solidarity, to make space for those who are weak, to bless the strong, to make straight the way of the Lord, to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The interaction of church and society is the foundation of a good Lent, and a good Lent the foundation of a just society. Not a Lent of abstinence, but a Lent of listening to our vocation, to rejoicing with those for whom things are going well, to suffering with those left behind. A listening Lent is one of robust disagreement, not bland assurance, but disagreement with a moral vision and destination. A good Lent starts within us. It moves through those most closely around us. It comes into the church, which must seek its own collective Lent, a discipline we have often forgotten. And it must be so generously experienced that it overflows into society. We will not really have a good Lent until that chain is complete. And for that we pray, may your kingdom come. Amen.
thank you very much indeed. And can I now just ask that people scribble down on your programmes your questions for the Archbishop and hold them high so that the Wandsman can come and collect them and round them up. <clears throat> if you could do that now and through the next uh, 20 minutes or so. If I may just start, the emphasis that you've brought to listening. Um, the problem, it seems to me, is that we're a sort of nation of interrupters <laughs> at the moment. And the well, can I answer that now? <laughs> <laughs> And the person who takes the breath for the longest is considered to be the listener, you know. So we know it's important to listen to your life. We know it deep down. But there is so much demanded of us through social media to have an opinion, to react quickly. Um, how can you give us a lesson or two on how to listen better? It's something I'm constantly talking, uh, saying to myself, really. I quite often go into a, me a meeting and write at the top of the agenda, shut up. <laughs> um, people look at it and are obviously thinking, who's he, who's he thinking of? <laughs> the answer is me. Um, two very brief things. One, the discipline of waiting and of trusting in the waiting, trusting God that what one wants, what one thinks is right, even believes passionately is right, is not entirely dependent on yourself, on oneself, but on the grace and power of the Spirit of God both in the church and in the world, mm. in society. So it's faith. It's saying, I don't need to be the only one who makes this happen. The second one is something I was taught quite recently. I don't know, I can't remember how. Um, and I'd heard people say, you know, the Benedict says uh, the gatekeeper at the monastery needs to greet every visitor, and he says, in brackets, and there will be many, close bracket, and you can hear the sigh. Benedict says you must, that the gatekeeper must ev treat every visitor as Christ himself. I think it was probably the last time I read that, because I read my way through the rule on a steady cycle again and again. And... I've, I'm trying to teach myself that going into a meeting to say to myself, I will listen to each person as Christ. And one listens better if on the occasions that one f follows that. Mm. I was reading that in the early days of the church, uh, Lent was 36 days, not 40 because the idea was to tithe the year for God. <laughs> and I'm wondering whether I need to tithe my talking time to give up one-tenth of when I would be talking and turn it into, into listening. I like that. Thank you. Um, You'll probably hear that again. <laughs> but it'll it, sound it, as though it's my thought. <laughs> 
It comes from sitting on a cathedral chapter, don't worry. <laughs> Done that. <laughs> um, questions are coming in. Thank you very much. Let's begin them. Um, one of the things that you've um, laid out for us is, is some of the things that we might be able to do to listen, to read a gospel, to seek uh, generosity. One of the things that perhaps people might have been expecting to hear, um, and you might want to talk a little bit more about now, and somebody said, is fasting um, from food something you would recommend for Lent? How would you recommend doing this if so? Uh, where it is in health terms okay, yes, I would recommend it, but be sensible. Um, there are lots of things we can fast from. Um, it is a good thing to do, but it has different effects on everyone. Um, I'm very struck quite often, uh, uh, particularly when I've been in Muslim countries by how fasting is done at Ramadan which as we know is you eat before dawn and you eat after dusk uh, last summer in Ramadan uh, Ramadan fell in the summer I think it was July August and for Muslims in this country that was obviously immensely difficult but in many where it started of course it's much easier the days tend to be less long um, and I think that's, that's one way of fasting. Skip one meal. It's probably not a good thing if you fast in such a way that you become intensely grumpy and totally unbearable to live with. I speak from experience. Um, if I fast, uh, when I fast, I tend to uh, either miss breakfast and lunch or during that lunch, and um, I cheat. Uh, I mean, I, I am reasonable because I keep some um, glucose tablets in my pocket and when I'm feeling the blood sugar's got so low that I'm going to actually bite the head off the next person to come into the office, I take a sugar tablet. And that helps. So be sensible, I think. And then if you can't do that, fast from something else. I know it sounds trite, but try giving up television and use the time for silence. Half an hour of television, 10 minutes of television, the adverts. <laughs> I'm trying to reach for something everyone can do. Um, so that's, that I would, um, I think that's, a, uh, I think what I'd say, it is, it's a really good thing provided the time uh, is used and the sense of hunger is used not negatively and not self-righteously but to call us back to crying out to God for his grace and help. You spoke uh, at the beginning of your talk about the Coptic Christians and uh, a couple of questions have come in that would like to pursue that a little. The first says, how should Christians in Syria or Iraq journey under fire towards a good Lent? Mm. Uh, and um, the uh, second question that's, that's just come in is, is rather uh, similar about um, how uh, Christians who are under such terror 
at the moment, uh, how they can listen and learn to be trustful, waiting for the kingdom to come. So a question really about what you've said today, how it might translate into those extreme situations for brother and sister Christians. I'm slightly thinking aloud here, and in one sense I'm not going to say what they should do for a good length because it would seem so presumptuous from this wonderful place and the security in which we live. I think I'd want to start by the remembering that the journey of Lent that begins with ashes, which is where I began this evening, ends with an empty tomb. Well, actually, Lent ends before that, of course, but that's the end of, uh, that's the great change of pace and tone in the church's year. We go through Passion Tide, through Holy Week, through Good Friday, and we end with an empty tomb. Why did those 21 martyrs continue to call out the name of Christ until the very moment of their death? Because they were full of hope, was what Bishop Angelos said. He said that yesterday. I was so moved because it came from him. And I think for those caught up in that place, what we can do is to live lives that demonstrate that we hope and trust in God. And that is to be in solidarity with them as much as our circumstances permit. Mm -hmm. It's when we abandon that hope in God that we abandon them, I think. And what can they do? I'm, I remember, sorry, I get anecdotal at this moment because I've got a good answer, except that somehow God gives grace. I remember being in a village that had just been attacked uh, about 2009, this was, 10. And um, it had been raided. The raiders were still visible. They were about 400 meters away watching us. It had been raided a couple of days earlier and slumped against the wall at one point of his ruined house was a man who lost his wife and I think seven children. They'd been thrown down a well. And I sat down next to him and we sat in silence for a while. He was sitting on an ash heap, it was Job. And he, after a while, through an interpreter we talked and he said, he told me all about him. And he said, but God does not change. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how he said that, but he said it. And that is the way in which the grace of God seems to come to so many people and rescue them in some extraordinary way. A couple of questions have come in to following this. That how, for you, does the death of, say, those Coptic Christians and 
and others. How does this affect your personal perspective and faith? Uh, Angelos said to me yesterday that um, <clears throat> the, in the village where a number of them came from, uh, the t Egyptian television was interviewing the brother of one of them and his brothers and the brother said I rejoice today and the television interviewer said how can you possibly rejoice and he said because I know my brother is in heaven you know Christian faith is not all about what we do here and now nor is it pie in the sky when we die it is the assurance, the confidence that God so loved us that he reached out to us and caught us up through Jesus, through death, to life that is forever. And when I hear how those Coptic Christians died and hear, when I talk to people who themselves, one particular person I remember who influenced me hugely, who'd been imprisoned and tortured for nine years before being released for his faith. It recalls to me that in our faith we must hold centrally to the eternal, not merely the temporal and present mm. faithfulness of God. Mm. Mm. I mean, as I've been hearing you this evening, I've been thinking about Lent not being lost if you can develop a spirituality of speaking for others. Oh gosh, I guess rather wonderful. than, and I'm very, I, I go to a lot of ordinations here, <laughs> and, I, he, does, and I hear uh, the Isaiah reading that you mentioned, read a lot, and often people end by saying, here am I, send me. And yet it seems to me that the stress should be on send. Yes. Here am I, send me. But we can be so caught up in our individualistic spirituality, which you pointed to in Lent, that actually a spirituality of speaking for others, it seems that these times, these terror times, is so important for us living in such safety, relative safety. I think that's very, very true. Um, and that's certainly something to add to the list of what makes a good Lent, the capacity to learn to speak for others. And to weep for others, perhaps, as well. The gift of tears, uh, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Which, um, your time as Archbishop has been caught up with money <laughs> in many ways. Mm -hmm. And a question here, how can money be used to help us have a good Lent? Oh, what a good question. <clears throat> I think at its heart is the issue of who it belongs to. Not in human terms, lest someone thinks I'm the headline tomorrow is Archbishop calls for severe redistributive taxation. But in our own hearts, how, how do we look at what we've got? Is it ours or is it something we're given to look after? And it's that change of attitude that we can come to through that. And isn't it a struggle? It's such a, money is so powerful. 
at any level and in every life. Um, you know, the, the importance, I think, where money comes in is re-putting money into its place as a servant. And perhaps as a societal level, I've said this many times before, financial services committing themselves to being services, not mm. financial masteries. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about anyone in particular here, but just how that works at a grander scale. And in a church, I mean, a place like this, I was dean of a cathedral, a little bit bigger than this, actually. <laughs> yeah. In fact, much bigger. <laughs> It's a nice cathedral. Oh, thank you. <laughs> nice it's not much, but I call it home. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. It's, um, but I, I can see another chapter member, especially if I put my glasses back on there. Doesn't one, isn't it true that in the life of the church, particularly when you've got a fabulous building like this, how money can come to be almost everything that you think of. Mm -hmm. So a good Lent perhaps at the church level is saying we exist for the worship of Christ and making him known in our words and deeds and we need to run things well but everything else comes second to that. Perhaps that is a way to tackle money, particularly in the church. I was reading Spike Milligan's little thing that money talks, I won't deny. I heard it once, it said goodbye. <laughs> it certainly does in cathedrals. <laughs> There's um, a question here, a very practical question, about how you would encourage a parish together, a congregation, uh, a parish, to celebrate a good Lent. Um, I think very simply, I sort of hinted at it or alluded to it at least two or three times during Lent, get together on a very simple bring and share meal. Spend a little bit of time in prayer, silent or together. Give people an opportunity for confessions, to talk to each other perhaps, if that's wise and proper, or you know, the old sort of things very practically that one does, like having a, a cross where you put some post-it notes, you write the things that you want to hand over to God. There's all kinds of things that people do. And end with a very simple meal and fellowship in which you make sure you talk to the people other than the ones you normally talk to, that you don't talk about the business of the church, and you try and discipline yourself to talk about what it is to share your Christian life, to be a Christian, to be a disciple of Christ. And you're honest about prayer, about difficulties in understanding what the vicar says every Sunday, the old definition, six days invisible and one day incomprehensible. Um, it's actually not true at all, I need to say. Um, and I think that sort of very practical, simple gathering, kept almost austere, mm. but very simple and joyful and welcoming. Mm. And being together because you value each other, not because it's a particular time of the week. Mm. 
is a great way to enable the parish to listen, mm. to pray, to listen to each other, and to discern what God is saying through each other to the parish. I mean, the church talks a lot about truth, but, but seems to find honesty a bit more difficult. Yes, that's so true. And I'm wondering, in, in inviting us to think about honesty, whether this is a subject that you grapple with. Is it more difficult in your role to be honest? <laughs> is there a thing called institutional truth which forbids honesty? That's a very good question. I certainly remember, I mean, I've told this story before, you may have heard it, but someone had, I, I, I was doing a confirmation in, in Canterbury Diocese and um, or an ordinary service on a Sunday, I think, somewhere. I won't say why, I can't even remember. And I just threw in a line in my sermon about, you know, we are all sinners, I'm a sinner like everyone else. And someone came up to me afterwards and said, if I'd known you were a sinner, I wouldn't have come. <laughs> <laughs> It really doesn't encourage you to be terribly <laughs> honest. Um, but yes, there is an institutional truth. Uh, there is an institutional honesty problem, I think, with all institutions. And it's the opposite of love, isn't it? it because perfect love casts out fear, and fear leads us to not being honest. You can be too honest. I mean, you can say all sorts of things that people aren't ready to listen to or to hear and can't cope with, and that's not healthy. Um, but um, we do fight about truth, and yet so often fail to be honest about how we struggle with truth. Mm. And part of the, I think that's part of what the Bishop's pastoral letter is saying about the way we discuss issues in the nation. Mm -hmm. It's all about truth and, I mean, Understandably, I have every sympathy with politicians. I've learned that in the last two years, would you believe? I've become very s sympathetic to politicians and not feeling cynical about them at all, or at least scarcely at all, very seldom. Because on the whole, they're people who are trying to do a very good job and to do it truthfully, for whom honesty, in the sense of saying, I don't know, or this is a problem that hasn't got a solution, or, well, it has got better or worse, but that's just the way things turned out. I wish I knew why, why that had happened. All the sorts of things that they think, they genuinely can't say. Not it's that they shouldn't say, or it's, it's because they'll get torn to pieces. And they are, on the whole, very good people trying very hard. Um, so yes, I, I think that applies both in church and more widely. And, and somebody's just come in. How does speaking truth to society risk interrupting our listening during the season? How do you mm. balance mm -hmm. that? Well, I could obey my own advice and shut up once <laughs> in a while. Um, you see, the trouble with encouraging people to listen is that archbishops of Canterbury and Post at the moment tend to feel that the best thing to do is to talk to people about it, which is not a very sensible thing. Um, I think um, you're exactly right. 
say something and then leave it. Um, we do have to speak from time to time, but we can fast from speaking about things mm. for a while. Mm. It doesn't mean we've suddenly become non-existent just because we're not in the papers every day. And, and there's a balance, isn't there, between feeling bound to make a point when really the point is to make a difference. <laughs> there's a, yes, there's a difference between right. making a point and making a difference. And, and I think that's right. There's a lot of pressure mm, to do the former. Um, and I think it's something one struggles with. It's sometimes easier than others. There was a subject that came up quite recently where we had calls saying, what, what do you think of this? And my answer was, I don't know anything about it, and I can't say anything intelligent about it, or unintelligent, I can't say anything. So why don't you call the Bishop of so-and-so who actually understands the issue? I don't know how you interpret this question, but I, I'm just going to read it as it's come in. How would you encourage the Daily Mail to keep a good Lent? <laughs> Ooh. The temptation that has come upon me. One of my communications department is looking at me imploringly. Right, I'm going to say something really, really controversial. The other thing that's happened to me over the last two years, despite the last couple of weeks, is that I've become less cynical about journalists. I know that's wrong, but hey, I have. Again, like politicians, they're often caught in a place where they have to make a headline, they have to make things, they have to explain complex things simply, they don't always get it right, and it's very, it is genuinely extraordinarily difficult, not a lack of will, it is genuinely extraordinarily difficult to say they got it wrong. So for the Daily Mail, I'd say the same as to any institution. Be self-aware, listen, be brave, um, keep going. There's a lot of questions coming in about the listening, and, and what I intend to do is I'll just read three of them, uh, and then if you could just respond to the three. How can we listen when we're in a society dominated by a social media focused on me, in inverted commas, mm -hmm. How can we listen and live a good Lent in a society where patience, thoughtfulness, and compassion are seen as weakness? And what can I do to hear God speaking clearly? I'll go in reverse order. I went, uh, the third one, to hear God speaking clearly get into a Lent group or meet up with another, with a, a, a Christian friend or member of the family and look at some of, look at one of the Gospels together and spend some time in silence as well as speaking. It's that reading and then being silent 
not trying to think of something clever to say, but just chewing it over and asking you yourself those questions. Where am I in this? What's going on? What's the point that's being made? And then talking together about it, and then more silence, and then very simple prayers. I used to meet up with um, a couple of people when I was a parish priest regularly, and I promised it would just be half, we agreed it would be half an hour on their way home from work. Uh, one of them was sh on shifts, so it varied a bit. And the rule was half an hour, 10 minutes saying how we each were, being honest with each other, 10 minutes looking at something in the Bible, and 10 minutes prayer with lots of silence and quiet in it. Mm. And, I, and we both said that we heard God more often through that half hour than anything else. It wasn't sophisticated stuff. Secondly, in the business and narcissism and, and self-obsession of the world, which I think is the, really the summary of the two questions, I do think, I mean, I find this difficult because the diary is full and you feel tired and I have to say, and we have evening prayer at half past five in, um, in the chapel normally, and that just happens to be one of the times of day when I tend to fall asleep very easily. Does that ever happen to you? Never. No. <laughs> it's good to be with someone who's rigorously <laughs> honest. And, and um, the others are sort of 9 o'clock in the morning, 11 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2.30, round about 4, 5.30, 7 o'clock, and about quarter to 8. And um, um, we, uh, the period after that is the time for silence. It's a bad time for me, and I can find a million reasons for not being there except when I make the discipline to be there and I can then think of a million good reasons why it was good to have been there. So part of it, there is an element, you know, we can't get away from it. How do we listen? Turn off the phone, turn off the telly, turn off the iPad or whatever else brings in the social media and find somewhere comfortable, not too warm, not too cold, and give yourself initially 10 to 15 minutes and don't worry if your mind wanders. Mm. Bring the wandering thoughts in prayer. Lord, did you notice I was just then thinking about breakfast tomorrow or lunch today or whatever? Mm. Mm. Doesn't matter. God knows, who cares? Just make 10, start easily. Do what you can do. Saint, uh John Chrysostom said you need silence when you're reading the scriptures so that you can read the love between the lines. Oh, I didn't know that one. That's beautiful. Uh, which uh, you can sometimes fail to do if you're just caught up in the anal anal analysis, as it were, of each word and so on. I suspect that's what was going on in those half hours. Mm. Mm. Um, we're drawing to an end, but I just want to get a couple more of the questions that have, uh, have come in because they're 
important. The first is, um, somebody's asked, why did you choose Luke's Gospel? Well, I was going to choose Mark's um, because it's shorter. If I'm being really honest, I love Luke's Gospel because it's so exciting. It's such fun. It's got so many amazing, wonderful stories in it and bits and pieces and, um, and bits that set me back on my heels and challenge me immensely, deeply. It, Luke brings the stories of a Jesus who cares desperately about the outsider and the poor. Mm. And because in this job it's so easy to forget about that. Mm-hmm. I love Luke because he challenges me and says, come on, remember. Mm. Yes, the mark of, of your reading is the life you end up with, yes. with, with Luke's gospel, isn't it? It, it is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's a question here about um, if I do not give anything up for Lent, does that make me a bad Christian? Emphatically not. The point of giving up is that we add on. The point of giving up something for Lent is that our life is richer, more Christ-like, more the path is smoother. We make way for the Lord. We listen. There are so many ways in which we can do that other than by giving something up. And this sort of, I'm I'm emphatic about that because it's what I feel so often. I give myself a guilt trip on it. Mm. Don't give yourself a guilt trip. Don't beat yourself up. Add something. Do do something extra for people. rather than giving something up. Love, seek to love someone a little more who you find really difficult and never tell them that you're trying to do it. <laughs> it's not very encouraging, is it, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. It's, but, you know, you can... It can be as simple as after church. I mean, you know the feeling where you think, oh golly, it's them again. Oh yes. And perhaps the best thing you can add is when you see them after church on a Sunday or at some other point of the week, going over and saying, hi, how are you? Mm. Rather than desperately showing how busy you are somewhere mm. else so they won't mm. talk to you. Mm. Yes, yes. It- the gospel teaches us to love our neighbour as ourselves, not to hate our neighbour as ourselves. Absolutely. Which is um, we're rather some, good often at what that. We, we take out on others. What we're oh, God, yeah. Yes, I know. Um, finally, uh, a couple of questions here, and I, I think they're important because they, they take us back to where we began in a way. Um, I, I'm, personally, I've always been struck by that idea that, that God has given us a gift, and it's called our being. And the gift that we're asked to give back is our becoming. And we know as Christian people 
that that becoming is so caught up in what we call prayer. And yet, if I took a poll here, I would think that everybody secretly thinks that other people do it better than they can. Yes, I'm sure. Can you give us, as a final thought, one or two pointers as how to pray this Lent? I'll give two, and I, there could be 2,000, but I'll just pick two. One, pray honestly. Don't pretend that you, or for me, that I am other than I am. Because God knows anyway, there's really no point in pretending. If you're struggling with doubt, say to him, look, I don't really even know if you're there. And if you are, you don't seem to be very much on my side at the moment. That's what Job kept saying. If you're cross and you hate someone, say, I hate them. That's what the psalmist says from time to time. Mm. It's all there. If you're full of joy, say, I'm full of joy. Be honest in prayer, utterly honest, and then wait silently before moving on, just for a couple of minutes. Something, God will speak in some strange way. Secondly, be outward. I I think the thing I'm learning more and more at the moment is where you see spiritual life flourishing, it's almost always because people are looking outward, mm-hmm. whether it's in a sink, whether it's for an individual or a small group or a church or an institution. Uh, we had a, uh, I was in a meeting recently of a group of people where for a change we began to look outwards about things. And I've been meeting with that group of people for several years. And for the first time that I can remember, we felt energy bubbling up within us. Mm. And the sense of the voice of God speaking more clearly. Be honest, be outward. There's a million more things one could say. And also from what you've just been saying, to, to somehow come to terms with the fact that you're not perfect. Oh, golly, yes. I mean, the great thing, isn't it, isn't it amazing? It's the extraordinary thing about God that he sees us accurately. None of us knows who we really are. I certainly don't. None of us knows who we really are, let alone who anyone else really is. God knows who we really are at the depths of our being. Every single thing. And he is consumed with love for us. So much so that he gave his only son for us. And we find that again every time we break the bread in the Eucharist, every time we drink the wine, we find that again every time we open scripture. That 
Uh, God is for us and with us. That is the miracle that should enable us to have a good Lent. I interviewed in August Sarah Miles uh, here, and she talked very movingly about her conversion. And she said, uh, it's not like I once was blind, but now I see. It's more like I once was blind, and now I have really bad vision. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but it doesn't scan as well. (laughs) I entirely agree. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid uh, our time has come to an end. I, I, I just wanted to end by saying that originally I come from a rather obscure, unknown county called uh, Shropshire. And uh, I was brought up by my grandparents, and at the, at the bottom of my grandmother's uh, garden, um, there's a, a shepherd, uh, a real shepherd, who carries a real crook. And about two years ago, I said to him as a joke, not a very good one, oh, my boss has something that looks a bit like that. And I, I said, um, do you really use it to, to hook in naughty sheep and, you know, pull in the stray lamb? And he laughed and he said, no, 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 Mark. He said, let me tell you what I use this thing for. He said, I push it down into the ground in front of me so hard that I can hold on to it and keep myself so still that eventually the sheep learn to trust me. It seems to me that Episcopal ministry works best (laughs) when it's not out trying to rope the stray lambs in and haul them around the place, but when they're being held in a place that is so still that we can learn to trust them because it's a space we want to be too. And on behalf of everybody here, I want to thank you for helping take us to that place this evening. And uh, we wish you a very good Lent. Thank you very much.